Very well, thank you. Awesome. I'm super excited to to, to dive into this with you. Um, tell me a little bit about um, uh, this new book that's out now. It's quite riveting. I've had a chance to read uh, some some excerpts from it, and I thought that it was very eye opening. Uh, what was it that led you to, uh, to to write this book? Well, I have been writing about Michael Jackson for the best part of 12 years. And to understand what it's like to write about Michael Jackson is, is a somewhat, of, somewhat of a harrowing experience. I was sitting in a small studio at CNN's Los Angeles headquarters appearing on a Nancy Grace program during the trial of Dr. Conrad Murray, who had been charged with manslaughter, when I said on air that Michael Jackson was a drug addict. And the phone in front of me on the desk lit up like the night sky on July 4th. A series of abusive social media messages, hundreds of them, uh, flooded my phone from Michael Jackson fans who protested the allegation that he was a drug addict. From that moment on, I have been perceived to be public enemy number one from these ravenous Jackson supporters. Then, of course, last year we saw the HBO documentary Leaving Neverland, which was a very subjective exercise. It told the stories of two men that claimed Michael Jackson sexually assaulted them when they were young. So I said about what I believe is a very fair and accurate and bipartisan uh, investigation into trying to understand whether the man in the mirror, to quote one of Jackson's songs, was indeed, as one lawyer said in that documentary, the person behind one of the most complex and sophisticated child sex trafficking rings the world has ever seen. It was also somewhat of a rite of a passage for me too because I grew up in Australia and like many people my age, I'm 38, I was a big Michael Jackson fan and um, the reality was I was disturbed by the allegations. I was in America when he died in 2010. I covered the Conrad Murray trial. Then we had Leaving Neverland. And I felt that an, in, an independent investigation of Jackson's career was required not only for the, for the audience, for the book, but also for myself to try and understand the truth behind the man. Uh, you hit on some things that are just, uh, I mean, mind-blowing, uh, but in a good way. I, I feel like they're, you know there was never any accountability for some of the things, the events and actions that surrounded Michael Jackson's life. And I think that what's so good about uh, your new book is that it really highlights um, some of the things, like you said, that, you know, were just essentially swept under the rug. Um, while you were writing this book, um, what would you say was the most surprising thing that you discovered? Well, we open, I open the book with a prologue which describes in, in graphic and explicit detail a never-before-seen video that I've watched many times from various sources that shows Jackson role-playing with two young boys inside a hotel bedroom. 
there's nothing untoward. Like, there's nothing nefarious about them being in the bed together. Nothing happens. But just the dialogue between Jackson and the kids is disturbing in itself. And really, in many ways, I think that highlights the great paradox that was Michael Jackson. He was someone who craved the limelight. And he used that limelight to disguise what was going on behind the scenes. It's imperative to understand Jackson was never convicted of anything. So police did find child pornography in his Neverland ranch. And when you couple that with the revelations of this video, it's quite clear to me that Jackson was guilty of one thing, and that's not knowing right from wrong. And it's certainly wrong for a grown adult man to be uh, role-playing in the scenario that he was with these two children in the bedroom. I completely agree. I mean, I, I think uh, if the general public were to know, um, you know, to read this book that, you, that you've written, you know, I think that they would be mortified by, by some of the things that they, you know, that, that, they've, that you've come across. Um, it's, you summed it up earlier when you said it's, you know, the most harrowing story because it's, uh, I mean, you almost think that they're, you know, that you're talking about two different people. Uh, when you read this book, you know, we know the man in the mirror, the performer, the one that was loved by millions, and then, you know, to, to peel back the onion, so to speak, um, you know, your book shines such a such a bright light on the, the dark spots, the dark parts of his life. I think that upon reflection, very few people could dispute that Michael Jackson was a troubled individual. It's all too easy to look back upon one's life and career post-death and say that they this was the reason behind one's behaviour. And obviously Michael Jackson had a troubled childhood. He was exploited by his father as a member of Jackson 5. As a young kid, he was appropriately cast in scenarios with his older brothers that he probably shouldn't have been on the road touring as a member of the Jackson 5. But that's all well and good to help explain the psyche behind why someone might behave a certain way, but it certainly cannot be used as an excuse. And the Jackson fandom will often point to his troubled childhood as an explanation as to why uh, he was uh, the person that he was. And they say he was misjudged. The reality is Michael Jackson was not pure. He was a villain. Um, he did uh, things that crossed the line of what an adult should do. And he did it without consequence in most cases. But it's a, again, I can only reiterate, a court of law did adjudicate the allegations in 2005 that he had sexually molested children. 
and found him not guilty. So that's an important part of the obituary of Michael Jackson. You, you, I concur. I would definitely concur. He did some things that were just downright despicable. And like you said, he was, you know, in the eyes of the law, he was, you know, he was cleared. What would you say is the, what was the most difficult part about writing this book for you? I, I can't imagine, you know, some of the flack that you dealt with. Um, what would you say was the most uh, difficult part about, about penning this book? Well, I think it's the fact that people just don't have an open mind anymore. We live in an environment, and it's uh, in many ways um, a result of the current media landscape that is divided upon ideological lines. You're either a member of the left or a member of the right, and your news is tailored to your political allegiance. And I think that people don't have an open mind about these, these types of cases anymore. The reality is there's indisputable evidence that Michael did wrong. Now, that might not have crossed the line to pedophilia, but his behaviour was inappropriate. And for those people that are devout Jackson enthusiasts, to ignore that is to ignore what potentially occurred to these young boys. And imagine if this was today and a video emerged of Michael Jackson in bed with two young children. How would today's society react to that? He would be hung, drawn and quartered in Times Square for his behaviour. And I think that he was the beneficiary of an era. He was also the beneficiary of money and power to obscure his favour. And again, I think that it's very naive of the I would agree. I would definitely agree. I, I think, like you said, the, the fandom that surrounds uh, Michael Jackson is kind of what covers a lot, you know, a multitude of his, his you know, his various wrongdoings. I think that, um, you know, the fact that you highlighted these things, I mean, it should be a wake-up call, you know, to readers that, you know, even the most beloved celebrities, you know, are capable of the most, you know, ugliest of atrocities. There's no doubt that Michael Jackson um, had a deep and dark sinister side that the world has not fully grasped. At the same time, let's not forget he was a musical genius. And those two can coexist. They're not mutually exclusive. You can admire his music and his talents, whilst also understanding that he was a troubled individual. Um, that, that's important to understand. Absolutely. When you were doing uh, research for this book um, and, you know, just compiling a list of everything um, that was going to go into the book, 
Um, I know that you you must have um, encountered, you know, a lot of adverse reactions, criticism, and adversity. Um, how did you deal with it all? Uh, what was your, I guess, your mindset um, going into, you know, writing the book and dealing, I guess, with the fallout? Because, you know, as you know, there's always some sort of fallout with these type of things. I think that uh, anyone that knows my body of work knows that I'm prepared to tackle subject matter that is controversial by its very nature. Often they are stories that don't have a conclusion, and I aim to try and provide a conclusion to those stories. So going into this book, I knew that this was going to be a particularly sensitive one compared to other books that I have written. Uh, but you have to understand, today's media climate, there are very few reporters that are prepared to do the necessary work that's required to investigate cases like Michael Jackson. It's all too often that we see people in the media now opine as opposed to report facts. And the media was established with truth and tradition at its very core, and now has turned into an agenda-driven, partisan-driven um, uh, profession. And that's what makes working in the mainstream media almost impossible these days, because you have to take uh, a position. I'm fortunate that in writing this book, I was able to present a very subjective, uh, sorry, objective view as opposed to the subjective view of leaving Neverland. And in fact, in one section of the book, I examined quite closely the testimony of Wade Robson and James Safechuck, who provided their stories in the HBO documentary. And I actually analysed their statements using a law enforcement technique that detects stress in one's uh, voice. And that is seen as indicative of someone who might be embellishing stories or elsewhere. And whilst the analysis from professionals in law enforcement that did this exercise for me was overwhelmingly that these two, these two men were uh, likely telling the truth, they did detect some levels of embellishment and deception. And I reported that accurately and fairly. Um, so it would be unfair for anyone to criticize the work as being a subjective exercise like Finding Neverland. I agree. I agree completely. I think it's, I mean, it's, it's hard to refute the evidence when, when it's presented to you. Um, and, that's what I love about, about about this book that you wrote is, I mean, it lays it all out and it's, it's not hard to follow. Um, and the, the evidence is refutable, but again, you know, it's, you know, a person, you know, that says otherwise they're just really deceiving themselves. Yeah. I mean, it's an inconvenient truth to accept that someone that you have idolized had a twisted double eyes. I can understand that. Um, but you cannot be so blind or so single-minded to be in an echo chamber that protests his innocence when there is voluminous evidence to suggest otherwise. 
Absolutely. Yeah, I completely agree. It's, um, you know, it's really hard to believe that people, you know, still just sweep under the rug, you know, all of the wrongdoing that he did. But I mean, like you said, the you know, he was a musical genius and the two things they really, really aren't mutually exclusive. Um, I know that um, jumping ahead and just not trying to get totally off topic, but I know that you have um, also covered uh, the Jeff, Jeffrey Epstein uh, case and you've uh, spotlighted a lot of um, the wrongdoing and everything that he did. Um, in your opinion, your professional opinion, um, do you think that, um, but do you believe that his accomplice um, has enough leverage to, do you think that Miss Maxwell has enough leverage to get out of the trouble that um, that she's in? I don't. I think there are three distinct routes that she can pursue. One would be to try and take a plea deal in which she would accept responsibility and plead guilty to some of the more significant charges that have been brought against her and maybe the government would drop the perjury charges which are of lesser importance but she would still serve a significant amount of time in jail. Um, I think the second option that presents itself to her is to defend the case which I think is fraught because the Southern District of New York is notorious for only bringing cases that it believes, and I believe that it's a case against Ghislaine Maxwell, that if she was to appear in court, that a jury of her peers would unequivocally find her guilty, and therefore she faces 35 years in jail. The third option would be to sing like a canary. Now, I understand in talking to sources that Maxwell has said she doesn't want to talk about certain people but she's prepared to talk about others. Well, the government's not going to give her a choice in that. You, if you tell on one, you tell on all. And she's not going to be able to pick and choose. I also don't think that um, anything that she might have to tell them is anything that the government might not already know. In order to build a case against Ghislaine Maxwell, they likely spoke to other people within her orbit and Epstein's orbit and most likely threatened them with prosecution if they did not testify willingly against Ghislaine Maxwell. And they likely received immunity or a non-prosecution agreement to do so. So I think that Ghislaine Maxwell is up the proverbial creek without a paddle. I would say so too. I wanted your personal opinion because... Uh, your professional opinion, because I know that, um, you know, you're no stranger to, um, you know, the, the topic of, of crimes and, 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 you know, I think that your, your insight is, you know, is uncanny. And I, I just, I wanted to know there's, there are a lot of people that are of the mindset that she has, you know, so much dirt on, you know, various popular individuals that you know she can basically get out of this but like you i agree i don't think that there's any way out for her 
you know, I think it will boil down to one of those three things that you mentioned, though. And 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 she's guilty of one thing. I can tell you that for certainty. She's guilty of excessive hubris. She never believed that she would be charged in this case. She Correct. believes that Jeffrey Epstein's plea deal in Palm Beach County afforded for others to be given immunity, others being alleged co-conspirators. Now, the Department of Justice disagrees with that legal position, but nevertheless, Ghislaine Maxwell could have left the country. She has French citizenship. No, no one should forget about Roman Polanski and Polanski's... Uh, in the 1970s, after pleading guilty to statutory rights. He's been harbored by the French. He has not returned to the United States oh, and never right. will. Correct, yes. <laughs> that she decided to stay in America. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. You, you, yeah, you hit on some really good points there, and and the, um, I mean, it's it's really unsettling when you think about it. I do think that justice will prevail in this in this case, though. I, I think you the the three, uh, you know, options that you listed, you know, of the way that the case could go, I think is pretty spot on. It's. But I think I don't think she'll she'll emerge from this, you know, unscathed. I think she's going to, you know, I think justice will be rendered. I don't think Ghislaine Maxwell's going to see the light of day ever again. I think she'll probably die behind bars. Uh, she will die the custodian of the empire of dirt that her and Jeffrey Epstein accumulated. And uh, the question will be whether the most watched prisoner in the United States today um, remains just that and is not got to by nefarious sources or indeed got to by other inmates that might endanger her well-being and her life. Very true. Yeah, that's very, very true. Dylan, I'm all out of questions, but I wanted to thank you so much for stopping by today's show, and I wanted to open the floor to you if there's anything else you'd like to say to our listening audience. No, I just hope that everyone's safe and well during this uh, period, which is taking a tremendous toll on everybody. Um, and to that end, um, you know, I, I certainly encourage people to listen to the medical advice that is being rendered. Uh, by professionals in the field and to maintain the socially distanced policies and practices that the government is recommending because this is our world war and it's a, a troubling time for a lot of people. And um, those that have lost loved ones due to this pandemic, my heart breaks for them and I hope that uh, that people understand just how serious the COVID situation is. Very, very, very serious, and I think, um, I mean, I, I just think when this pandemic first started, I, I don't know that people realized the magnitude of it, 
and uh, it's taken so many, so many lives. And I mean, I hope it's my sincere hope that by the end of the year, you know, that there's some sort of vaccine. Um, this is absolutely troubling times indeed. Yes, certainly. I, I do hope that the vaccine comes sooner rather than later. But in the meantime, we have to be vigilant. And uh, and I hope your listeners are. Yes, sir. Absolutely. I, I agree. Thank you again, Dylan. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Anytime.